Welcome back to the Manly Saints Project. By me, Hugh Hunter. We live in a world that struggles to understand the virtues of manliness. Our culture doesn't provide young men, or any men for that matter, with a lot of positive male role models. When I became a Catholic, I wanted to show how the saints could be manly role models for us. My weekly exploration of manly saints became the Manly Saints Project. If you enjoy my work, please consider signing up and supporting me on Substack, or click the links in the show notes to buy me a beer. Now, let's meet this week's Manly Saint. Join me today to meet the very angry, very witty man who translated the Bible into Latin. Name, Eusebius Hieronymus, or in English, Jerome. Life, 340s to 420 AD. Status, Saint. Feast, September 30th. Our story opens in Bethlehem, in Palestine, in a quiet little monastery far from town. At least, it's usually a quiet monastery. Today there is a lion in the courtyard, and he is roaring ferociously. The monks, terrified, stay inside. But the abbot is so fierce, so fearless, so downright ornery, that he stomps out to tell the lion to shut up. And when he gets there, he realizes that the lion isn't angry, it's in pain. The abbot, of course, is St. Jerome. And the lion, following what was already an old literary trope, has a thorn stuck in its paw. The two fierce mammals regard one another. And finally the lion holds at its paw, and St. Jerome goes over and removes the thorn. By the time the frightened monks emerge from the monastery, the two are friends. We can read this story in the Golden Legend, a heavily embellished 13th century compendium of saints' tales. We can also find it in art. St. Jerome is drawn with the lion curled up beside him like a big house cat. Jerome is surrounded by books and usually has a memento mori, a human skull, that serves as a reminder of our mortal natures. Somewhere in the background is a cardinal's red hat. The story of the lion appears much later, and there was no such thing as a cardinal in the time of St. Jerome. But as symbols, these items capture the life of a manly saint, one who began by contemplating death as a philosopher, who became a scholar, and a confidant of popes, and who fought like a lion for what he thought was right. The real Saint Jerome was born somewhere in the Balkans. In Jerome's world, the church was emerging from four centuries of persecution, only to watch the society that had persecuted her wither away. But Jerome's father, a wealthy man, thought that there was much of value in Roman literature and learning so he sent his sons to the best teachers he could afford. That meant sending young Jerome to Rome itself to study with the pagan philosophers. Jerome reacted like many young people who go away to study. He chased girls and enjoyed the pleasures of Rome. But that didn't mean he neglected his studies. Jerome's powerful mind had found the stimulation it needed. He learned Greek and read everything he could find, immersing himself in the literature and philosophy of the pagan world. Jerome seemed on track to become an educated, 
sophisticated lawyer. But there was a problem. Jerome found Rome fun, but his life left him feeling empty. Philosophy, as Socrates had said, is a kind of preparation for death. And as Jerome immersed himself in pagan philosophical thought, he found his mind drifting to the question of his own death and what might follow. Later, Jerome would recommend a speech of another saint, Gregory the Wonderworker, where he tells how philosophy led him to God. Like Jerome, Gregory had his sights set on a legal career. But Gregory's teacher was the strange and controversial church father, Origen. St. Gregory describes what many young men feel when they are first exposed to philosophy, the strange compulsion of an argument. Even though arguments are just words, and often, as when presented by Origen, kind words, Gregory felt himself trapped by the logic of the argument and compelled to agree. It was fascinating and strange. He wanted more. We, that is, Gregory and his brother, were pierced by his argumentation as with an arrow from the very first occasion of our hearing him. Somehow or other we found ourselves quite unable to withdraw from Origen's arguments conclusively, and thus were always drawn toward him by the power of his reasonings, as by the force of some superior necessity. But Origen wasn't just introducing Gregory to philosophy. Origen understood that a Christian education leads from reason into faith, and that the love of wisdom leads to the love of the one who is truth. Soon, Gregory's plans to become a lawyer seemed much less interesting than they had before. And thus, like some spark lighting upon our inmost soul, love was kindled and burst into flame within us, a love to the Holy Word, the most lovely object of all, who attracts all irresistibly toward himself by his unutterable beauty. And being most mightily smitten by this love, I was persuaded to give up all those objects of pursuits which seemed to us befitting, and among others, even my boasted jurisprudence. I wonder whether Jerome saw himself in this story. For young Jerome, there was no origin to guide him along the way. It was just that the more Jerome thought about his mortality, the more he became convinced that the fast life he was enjoying could not be all there was. Jerome was conflicted. He would wander through graveyards to force himself to think about death. Finally, he made his decision and was baptized. The remainder of Jerome's life would be lived within the church. Now that he was a Christian, Jerome threw all his energy into study with a new focus. His studies took him all across the Roman Empire, and when he was in Antioch, modern Antakya in south-central Turkey, he went to live in the desert as a hermit. Jerome stayed there for five years. He began to write. He found a converted Jew who would teach him Hebrew. When he emerged from the desert, he was called to the priesthood. Jerome would continue writing for the rest of his life. When we read his writings, we can understand why people reacted to him as they did. Jerome was fantastically educated. He's always dropping in verses from the pagan poets, or observations from classical philosophy. 
Jerome's faith was unwavering. He was careful and kindly with those who came to him looking for spiritual guidance. But when Jerome encountered heresy, or lukewarm priests, or bad behavior among Christians, he saw red. After leaving the desert, Jerome felt himself drawn back to Rome. He knew he was an angry man. He regretted his anger, and frequently did penance for it. But for us, all these centuries later, it's hard not to smile at the encounter between a corrupted church and God's angriest saint. When Jerome arrived in Rome, he found plenty of things to be angry at. He blasted Christians who lived luxurious lives. He blasted priests who were more interested in food and status than in God. He blasted the wealthy priest Onassis for everything from his lifestyle to his weird-looking nose. When someone asked him how a Christian priest could pepper his writings with so many pagan quotes, Jerome answered that St. Paul did the same thing, and then told the poorly educated critic not to envy eaters their teeth because he is toothless himself. Many people thought that Jerome's hardline piety and take-no-prisoners approach was just what Rome needed. The corrupt churchmen hated the attention he was drawing. One man, though, who took notice was the Pope and future saint Damasus. He invited Jerome to become a kind of secretary and assistant, not a cardinal because there was no such thing, but in his inner circle. Damasus realized the potential of this fiery young man. Jerome's energies were being spent on commentaries and blasting heretics. That was good, but there was something even more important. Jerome had before him a great work, one that was increasingly necessary as the Roman Empire moved into its final years. About three centuries before Jesus was born, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. His empire didn't last, but Alexander gave much of Europe a common language. Greek. That's why the New Testament was written in Koine, or Common Greek. The books of the Old Testament were available in Greek as well. But now, in the time of Damasus and Jerome, Greek was being forgotten in the Western Roman Empire. Damasus knew that someone needed to translate the Bible into Latin, and Jerome could be that man. At the Pope's encouragement, Jerome began the great work of translation that would occupy him for years. He began with the Gospels. Damasus, though, was already an old man, and he would not live to see the completion of the project. And when Damasus died, a few years later, Jerome's many enemies came after him and made him so uncomfortable in Rome that he and many of those who admired him decided to leave the city and take up monastic life in Palestine. Jerome went to Bethlehem. He started a monastery with himself as abbot. It would be the last stop in his life. Out in the desert, Jerome had lost none of his forceful personality. He was attacked by a cleric named Vigilantius. Jerome responded fiercely, starting with the man's name. Vigilantius? The vigilant one? More like dozy Antius, Jerome started dictating the reply in just one evening. He revels with worldlings and declaims against the fasts of the saints. He plays the philosopher over his cups 
and soothes himself with the sweet strains of psalmody while he smacks his lips over his cheesecakes. That's just a sliver of section one. There are 17 sections. Meanwhile, an up-and-coming thinker from Africa, Augustine of Hippo, wrote Jerome a letter, but unfortunately parts of the correspondence were lost in transit and reached Jerome as rumor. Jerome didn't like that. He told the younger Augustine to reread the boxing match in the Aeneid, where the cocky young boxer challenges old Entellus. Entellus doesn't want to fight. His best years are behind him, he knows, and he gets knocked down at the beginning. But as his blood heats up, the old man knocks out the young one and pummels him on the ground until the hero Aeneas himself intervenes. The prize is a bullock, and Entellus, still filled with battle rage, sacrifices it with a skull-crushing punch to the bull's head. Augustine knew the Aeneid, too, and sent a conciliatory letter, and he and Jerome got along. Mostly. In his monastery in Bethlehem, Jerome received the news from the empire, and it was not good. He knew that Rome was hopelessly decadent. He had been complaining about it for years. But even Jerome was not expecting the horror and collapse that this decadence would bring. Jerome had done more than most to try to fix the problems in the church and in the city of Rome. He had failed. By the turn of the 5th century, the corrupt, unpatriotic Romans were no longer willing or able to keep the barbarian armies out of their territory. First the Visigoths, then others, poured into the Roman homeland. In 410 they sacked Rome. We know what Jerome did when he heard the news, because he himself tells us. He wept. Jerome's mentor and friend Damasus might be dead. Rome might be collapsing. But Jerome still had a task. He worked through the Old Testament. The Bible that emerged from his work would be called the Biblia Vulgata, anglicized as the Vulgate. It is still read today. Every few generations, scholars criticize St. Jerome's Vulgate for this or that. They're probably lucky that St. Jerome isn't responding to their opinions. And then, the criticisms are forgotten, along with the names of the critics, and St. Jerome's great work goes on. <laughs>